I'm Sandra, and I'm just the professional your small business was looking for. But you didn't hire me because you didn't use LinkedIn jobs. LinkedIn has professionals you can't find anywhere else, including those who aren't actively looking for a new job, but might be open to the perfect role, like me. In a given month, over 70% of LinkedIn users don't visit other leading job sites. So if you're not looking on LinkedIn, you'll miss out on great candidates like Sandra. Start hiring professionals like a professional. Post your free job on linkedin.com slash people today. Ryan Reynolds here from Mint Mobile. With the price of just about everything going up during inflation, we thought we'd bring our prices down. So to help us, we brought in a reverse auctioneer, which is apparently a thing. Mint Mobile Unlimited Premium Wireless. Ready to get 30, 30, ready to get 30, ready to get 20, 20, 20, ready to get 20, 20, ready to get 15, 15, 15, 15, just 15 bucks a month. So give it a try at mintmobile.com slash switch. $45 up front for three months plus taxes and fees. Promote for new customers for limited time. Unlimited more than 40 gigabytes per month. Slows. Full terms at mintmobile.com. This podcast is a Royfield Brown production. Find others on iTunes. All right. Yeah, I know. Ladies and gentlemen, please remain standing for the singing of our national anthem. Let's get Brexit done. My administration has accomplished more than almost any administration in the history of our country. Hello and welcome to Mid-Atlantic, the show where we look at the news and the views from one side of the Atlantic from the perspective of the other. I'm Michael Brown, who is in um, Oakland. I'm in the Bay Area in Northern California. Now, today we are joined by author Jared Kobeck, who's the author of The Future Won't Be Long and I Hate the Internet. He's in Los Angeles. We also have political scientist Jane Jun, in, who's also in LA. You can probably look out your window and, and wave at Gerard there, uh, Jane. And we have constitutional law professor Corey Brett Schneider, who is in uh, New York. And we have former Senate staff, staffer Clint Losey in Washington, D.C. Very obviously, this is not our normal team. Um, what I've decided to do is put together a brains trust of Americans who are going to try and make sense out of um, last week's election. Today is kind of the craziest day ever. This is my first time voting and seeing someone that looks like me being the vice president of this country is like an absolutely unreal feeling. I never expected that there would be not only a female vice president, but a South Asian vice president. It's kind of hard to describe in words and the feeling right now is insane. I hope that we can see more instances like Georgia happen where disenfranchised voters are suddenly come and are able to vote. And yeah, I'm really excited to see where this is gonna go. And I'm really happy Trump is out of office. First off, Jane, you are a data scientist. You're a, a political scientist. The first thing, which we have to just get out of the way first, is that the polls got this wrong. Why so and how so? Well, there are a lot of reasons, potential reasons why I think people are still trying to figure out why that is the case. But let's remember a few things. One, when you gather data in a poll prior to an election, so in other words, when you ask ordinary Americans who are they going to vote for and why are they going to do this? That poll in and of itself is not necessarily what the electorate will look like. So on top of any data that are collected by a news organization or a polling firm 
or a candidate, one has to impose what's called a turnout model on top of that. So you, you don't just take the data for what they are, but you try to estimate who is actually going to be in the electorate. So you have a likely voter model or what's called a turnout model, and you estimate that turnout. So one of the things that I think is quite clear that was mistaken in the pre-polls leading up to the election, whether they were in individual states or for the nation total, were that we overestimated the Democratic turnout. Is that because historically the conventional wisdom has always been that higher turnout just favours Democrats full stop? But of course, as you know, the conventional wisdom is only right until it's wrong. Those are the assumptions that drive it. So we use the past to predict the future. So any moving average. So the same is true for economists when they try to predict what's going to happen. They look at what's happened in the last six months in the stock market. And the same is true here. So we used the expectations of conventional wisdom to say that higher turnout would benefit Democrats when in fact it looks to be the case there was higher turnout among everyone. And so I think one of the things that went wrong were in the turnout models where we estimated this many Democrats and this many Republicans coming out. In addition to that, I think there are other theories about what could have gone wrong. People were reluctant to say they were voting for Trump. They may have felt embarrassed about this. This is conceived of as the shy Trump voter, something like 71 million Americans, and probably just a little more than that, cast their vote affirmatively for the person currently in the office. So I think there are a lot of different ways that the polls could have gone wrong, among them these two major factors. Is this going to really hobble how serious the media and also politicians are going to take the polling industry in future? I think they got it right and wrong in 2016. You know, if you looked at the national vote, it was actually spot on, but it called certain states, important states, incorrectly. And okay, you can say lightning can strike uh, once, but lightning struck struck twice now, hasn't it? I don't know if it hobbles the media as much as it hobbles candidates internally. So what you don't often hear on the radio or on the news or on any podcast is the information from the internal polls done by candidates, and even those were wrong. And I think one of the things that is creating the difficulty for everyone is the capacity to contact people. Because one other thing that you need to remember is when you're doing a survey, you got to write the right questions, you have to select the right respondents, but you also need to contact them. Does anybody have an actual landline? I think I do, but I don't know where the phone is to plug it into the wall. So I don't have a landline anymore, technically. And cell phones, um, we have internet samples. These things are much more difficult to calculate, you know, population moments like means and standard deviations from which we can then create how the world is changing is making it much more difficult to understand why people are voting the way that they are. Everybody wants to know what the most recent poll says. With respect to the validity of the industry, it will continue to try to keep up with all of the changes that are going on in society and with technology more generally. I must admit, I no longer listen to 538 as intently as I used to. You know, I'm a bit like, mm, Nate Silver, mm, you, got, you got it right in 2008, but like, mm. uh, Clint, obviously you used to work in, in Capitol Hill. How important was internal polling for your senator in terms of decisions he was going to make? Uh, I had the luxury of working for a senator. Uh, it was a Republican senator, um, and I've, I've uh, moved on from that position politically uh, in, in the intervening years. But like a lot of Republican senators out in uh, middle America, he was in a very safe state. 
He uh, was very popular. And uh, we took about one poll every six years, and that was the election. I know that there are other offices uh, and other senators that did do a little bit more and and factored that in. And and those happen in bigger states and more diverse states. But I do think that one of the things that you see in the Senate is, is that there are just not a lot of very swingy senators anymore. And so I'm not sure how much they're looking at polls. Um, they're probably looking more at, at, at opinion polls on issues. So Susan Collins up in Maine, she, she's looking at the polls. But if you're a senator over there in, in Nebraska, not so much. Yeah, pretty much. And, I, and I'm not even sure how much Susan Collins would be looking at polls. 2020 was the fight of her life. That may have been a unique situation even for her. So just looking at the data, Right here and now, it is uh, a week after the election and uh, votes are still being counted. But at the moment, 76 million Americans have voted for Joe Biden and 71 million have voted for for Donald Trump. So that's a disparity of some 5 million votes. That vote uh, gap will will slowly uh, get larger as more votes are counted. However, for the rest of the world kind of looking at this, this was a relatively close election because we've got to look at it in terms of the electoral college and it was a few uh, states which actually sent Joe Biden over the top. But the question that I'm proxy for, which the rest of the world is going to ask in America, is why did so many Americans, after what they've seen for the last four years, still vote for Donald J. Trump? You got a point of view about Donald Trump? Uh... Well, you know, Donald Trump is what Americans love. Donald Trump is what Americans aspire to be. Rich, powerful, do what you want to do, say what you want to say, be how you want to be. That's kind of been like the American dream. So he looks like a boss to everybody and Americans love to have a boss. So, you know, that's his appeal to me. You know, do I think he's going to do anything to help poor people or people that's struggling? No, because, you know, he's a rich white guy. How does he, how can he relate? You know, and he's always been rich. And, you know, being rich don't make you bad. I ain't saying that, but I'm just saying, how can he relate? How can he relate to the, to the, to the small guy? For a lot of people, like when Trump, even before he ran for president, four years ago, when he was like one of the leaders of the birther movement mm-hmm. and was loudly going around saying that President Obama was not legitimate president. Yeah. And that he was born in Kenya. For a lot of people, that's like, that man's a racist. Do you mm. feel like that? I, I still, I mean, I, I'm still mad he took down the USFL. <laughs> <laughs> I think that was a cool league, right. especially for the summer. But anyway, yeah, yeah. Uh, nah, man, you know, it's like he sounded crazy to me then. Yeah. You know, uh, I could see raising a question, but once you get the answer, man, move on. You know, to to still harp on it and to, lie that you're sending investigators and all this stuff to me was was just uh, a guy who couldn't who couldn't say that he was wrong. I think it just kind of goes to to show that there is such a significant part of the population that is uh, single issue voters. And maybe it's abortion, maybe it's the economy. And the economy is a place where the Republicans have managed to out message the Democrats in, in, a, in a very big way, um, and that they will forgive a whole lot of awful, awful stuff. Uh, and we saw exactly what they were willing to forgive in Trump. Jared, 
I pretty much cannot say anything other than to echo what Clint has said. I, I agree completely. Did you think maybe sometimes as liberals, we look at things and say everything is 3D chess all the time and really it does boil down to this is my burning topic for a lot of people. This is incredibly important to me right here and now. And it is, let's say, abortion or it is I've got a great tax cut. And we think that the electorate thinks about politics and policy all the time and is a little bit unsophisticated than we would like to think. And that sounds a little bit patronizing, but I've said it. Uh, yeah, I think that's right. I mean, I fundamentally, I believe the voters, they may make the wrong choice, but they make rational choices. And it's a question of like what they pay attention to and what they don't. Things that appall me do not appall a huge amount of this country. And I don't think the media helped. Corey? There's some percentage of people now, political scientists, my understanding is think it's pretty high, who were not single-issue voters excusing the racism. They found the racism, the appeal. Now, what percentage of that is, I'll leave that to the, the people who really look at the data. And this was predicted before by people who were looking at the Tea Party, for instance, and saying there is a large percentage of the appeal of the Tea Party, despite its explicit message being about the economy and, uh, you know, issues that didn't have to do with race was really about race. And then when you saw a person who came to power because of a kind of racist denial of birtherism, the more he did the racist rhetoric, <laughs> the numbers didn't go down. You would expect that, you know, as at least some people who cared about other issues saw that some percentage would lower, that was a frightening thing that America has to deal with, that some, I'll call it large percentage of his base found the white supremacy appealing. Isn't one of the beauties or pernicious things about dog whistle politics is that it's exactly that, it's dog whistles. It means that some people hear exactly what, what you're really saying. Some people misinterpret what you're saying and take it um, at face value. And then some people just don't hear it at all. And that's really uh, what Trump has specialized in it's dog whistle politics and some people could hear it and some people couldn't hence we get 71 million americans voting the way that they did uh, i'm not sure it's a dog whistle i think it's more like a primal scream and i think everybody can hear it and the question is who decides to turn it off but i think the modal response to that primal scream make america great again is the primal scream about anger of the loss of white privilege about anxiety, about keeping things the way they were and staying on top. And I think if there was anything that helped to push people over, it's the nomination of a black woman, Kamala Harris, as a second in command to a 78-year-old man. For voters who supported Trump about how much the change in the population, the change in the world, the change in the economy means a loss for them. It is an act of desperation. For some, it may not be. For some, it might be an economic choice because they like their taxes. But I think the modal position is exactly what was reflected in the campaign slogan, keep America great, make America white again. It is the modal reason why you see this many Americans, very heavily white, supporting Donald Trump. So let's go back and, and have actually look at the various kind of constituencies um, of the American electorate. 11% of the national electorate is African-American. Uh, nine out of 10 of them 
supported Biden. This meant that in Philadelphia, in Detroit, and in Atlanta, in effect, they won the election. What does this mean for American politics going forward? And specifically that the Democratic Party as being the party of the black voter, it, they really seem to have made a difference in this election, so much so that Joe Biden acknowledged it in his um, acceptance speech. Does this mean that we might have um, policies around racial justice in a Biden administration? I think it remains to be seen. You know, how does Biden govern with this very complicated result, right? Like the top line of the result is that Trump is gone. That is great. How much the Democratic Party then fulfills or even has the capacity to fulfill its various promises, which were pretty nebulous during the election itself. I mean, let's hope, right? But Biden's terrible on race. Like all voters, there was a kind of rational decision in there, right? That Biden was less terrible than Trump is. Every single time someone would ask him a question about his really complicated history with the African-American community, it would not be the best answer, I'm sorry. But let's play it forward. Obviously, I would say that sure. a lot of American politicians don't have a great history around race. That's true, but Biden is not particular. I thought it was really poignant in his speech on Saturday. He says, African-Americans, you've had my back and I've got yours. If it wasn't for Clyburn in uh, South Carolina, he wouldn't have won the Democratic nomination. And it's Philadelphia, Atlanta and Detroit, which have put him over the top. So I, I, mean, I agree with that completely. I mean, I think, but I think the reality of it is, until you see the results, he's just a politician. You know, who knows? He could surprise me. I, I genuinely wish Biden the absolute possible best, you know, and genuinely hope that whatever he is able to accomplish actually does move towards these ends. Is that going to happen? I don't know. I don't have a crystal ball. Corey, let's just quick, quickly jump on to you before we, we move things on. There was talk that the there could be a new Supreme Court in terms of just raw numbers. It seems like that probably will not come to pass. For our British viewers and for our viewers around the world who aren't so immersed in American politics, could you just tell us exactly what court packing would actually mean and maybe the reasons why it's maybe not most likely to happen in the first coming years of a Biden administration now? The phrase uh, refers to um, the idea that you would add justices to the Supreme Court specifically to dilute the votes of existing justices. And I think the sort of reference that most people think of when they think of court packing is the threat that FDR made to pack what was known then as the Lochner Court. It was a Supreme Court that with two broad doctrines was had a limited idea of what government could do. And as FDR tried to pass the New Deal, uh, that court basically was striking down fundamental elements of the New Deal. And FDR made this threat, which is that he'll uh, work with Congress to increase the size of the court and add justices 
the way he put it was that he was concerned that they were overworked and that it was a matter of efficiency. But of course, it was an attempt to, to threaten to add justices, to dilute the existing ones, to get the New Deal through. Now, what happened was that the court basically all of a sudden engaged in what's commonly called the switch in time that saved nine. They, a couple of the justices started to switch their votes. They upheld these New Deal proposals, including the National Labor Relations Board, and switched from a really broadly libertarian court to one that was allowing at least progressive legislation through. So he never needed to carry, carry forth. Now, I don't know, you know, I'm not willing to, to give a definite prediction that this isn't going to happen. I think a lot of it depends on what this court does. So, for instance, in the Obamacare case that's being heard today, but if they were to strike down Obamacare, I think that would give people a lot of pause about the Supreme Court. If they were to reverse the right to gay marriage, if they were to reverse Roe versus Wade, you'll start to hear calls for court packing. And even former Republican Solicitor General has come out saying, let's wait and see. I might be for this, you know, depending on what this court does. Just just on that point, though, Corey, let, yeah. let me understand something, because sure. I understand there's originally some this contextualists in terms of are you reading exactly what the constitution says or are you kind of just taking the context of it and whatever but it seems to me that somebody like john roberts very much is politician as a justice and he is reading uh, the temperature of the room of the nation isn't he in a way we have the same dynamic potentially going on that i was describing with fdr which is that you have a very politically savvy justice and John Roberts, chief justice, who's concerned about the institutional legitimacy of the court. He definitely does not want to see court packing. You know, the worry is, of course, that will open up a war of just adding justices every time a party takes over. You know, he's no longer technically the swing justice. Uh, We have Amy Coney Barrett, who's been confirmed. And my sense of her is that she's a very different kind of justice than John Roberts. She's not a pragmatist. She's certainly a originalist in the tradition of Justice Scalia, to me, seems very committed to extreme view of religious freedom that might be incompatible with gay rights. So I'm definitely not willing to predict that he's got control over this. I mean, that's the drama is, does he, can he convince these justices one by one to join him in pushing back against what would really be, you know, pushback to fundamental rights. Um, uh, that's the drama that's about to play out. And I, I don't have a clear prediction either way on that. I just was curious. I don't actually know. What is the mechanism by which one could expand the court? It's just through legislation. So you would have a, the size of the court is set through congressional legislation. You would have to have an act passed by Congress that would increase the size by whatever number. I, I, I'm with Charles Freed, the Solicitor General, who I mentioned in thinking we have to wait and see, you know, how radical is this court. And that legislation would just be through a simple majority? Yep. Interesting. Yeah, I mean, we've had many different sizes of the court throughout history, and we've had uh, a reduction in size. The court went down to seven um, at the founding, uh, there was a lower number. So we, we've had all sorts of numbers throughout American history. And, and there's nothing in the Constitution that sets the number at nine. Corey, you talked about uh, John Roberts not wanting to excite the base. Jane, who exactly is the Republican base now? What has the last election told us? The Republican base has remained pretty consistent. If you look across time, let's just talk about race. So the Republican Party, if you look at the composition, if you just took 
a big Starbucks, one of those clear ones, you know, that you get the pumpkin spice latte or something in, you know, the clear big ones, and you filled it all up with all Republican voters. How full would that glass be with white people? So I'm not saying are white people like 60% Republican, 40% Democratic. I'm asking you how full the cup of the Republican Party is with white voters. What do you think, Clint? You're a Republican. You work for a Republican uh, senator. So how full is the Republican bucket? How full is it in very, uh, very, very much a former, very much a former Republican. A former. But I, I would guess that in that Starbucks cups, there is a, an overwhelming amount of steamed milk. Um, <laughs> that is, that yeah, I didn't ask you about that. Uh, but no, I mean, I think the Republican Party is overwhelmingly white. I don't. I'm not sure that I want to throw out a number, but you know, it's it's not just a majority. It's very is it like just sixty. Is it like seventy? Yeah, that's that's you know that's the thing that I'm not in a position to really guess on, and it would just be a guess. But yeah, 60, 70, 80, like it, it, it's it, ninety. Okay, it's ninety. Okay, it's ninety. Oh, I'm sorry, I was going to let you guess, but then, but it's ninety. It's been this way since 1964. So you see a slight increase in the number of voters of color who've gone Republican. That's another question people may want to discuss. But basically, over time, the Republican Party has always been the party of white supremacy. That's just the way it's been. And let me ask you another one. Are there more women or more men in the in that Republican Starbucks cup? By the way, this show is not sponsored by Starbucks, but how full is it? Of, is, are there more women or more men in the Starbucks cup this year? in 1980-1964. If, if this is directed me, I'll just say I, I listened to your last show uh, with Royfield and I enjoyed it pretty much and I think the answer is women. You are right. So there you go. So there have always been more women, at least in the modern period, in the electorate and certainly so for Republicans. So the Republican Party is in fact a party of mostly white people so the question is, why did we have this media narrative on the run up to this election that suburban woman was a uh, breaking Democrat and this was going to be historic? I know when we spoke, I mentioned the midterms and you and you slapped me down. You went, no, 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 no. <laughs> right. And you were right. Right. You were absolutely spot on and right. But why did we get these this media narrative, all these New York Times pieces of where did that all come from? If the data tells us that, if anything, Trump gained uh, white women and suburban women. The answer to your question begins with a demographics observation, and that is suburbs are no longer exclusively white. Go anywhere. You're in Oakland, like drive out a little bit and you'll see that the suburbs in California, you can even go to Chicago, other states that look a little bit less diverse. Mm. And the suburbs are not populated only by white people. Gated communities are no longer only populated by white people, but instead suburbs are as racially diverse as other locations. I think that the other thing that is happening is there's wishful thinking among journalists who tend to be liberals, and if not liberals, at least people who believe in facts, people who believe that something that the corona, like the coronavirus actually exists and does kill people. My simple explanation for what's going on is that we have in our minds an antiquated understanding of what suburban women are. Suburban women are me. I'm a suburban woman, and I'm not a Republican. It also speaks to the way people read messages from the president when he talks about suburban housewives. Many reporters 
Many women reporters called me after that and said, oh, he's so dumb, isn't he? He's just this, using this term of derision. And my response to them is it's not a term of derision to some people. To be a suburban housewife is something that you actually aspire to. Clint, obviously you used to work on Capitol Hill specifically for a senator. You're no longer self-identified as, as a Republican. But give us some kind of sense as to what the present composition, not the present, the future composition of the Senate is going to be, because obviously they don't come in until January, and how that's going to be informing, let's say, Mitch McConnell and other Republican senators as to the policies and also just the fact that are they even going to work with a Biden regime? Depending on your experience in the past, tell us exactly what's going to be kind of going on in Capitol Hill and specifically the Senate. First of all, I think that there are going to be two kind of distinct periods here. The first period is running up until January 5th. That's when the Georgia special elections will happen. So a lot of what happens between now and January 5th is going to be modulated by the need for Republicans to project an image that will help uh, their candidates in Georgia win uh, in those runoff races. And, and that is for the control of the Senate. So it's do or die for the Democrats, especially the Republicans only need one seat to have the majority. They were to lose two and those results are likely to, to kind of possibly come in a pair. Then that's going to be game over for Mitch McConnell. The next eight or nine weeks running up to that election, uh, you're going to see a little bit more cooperation. Maybe you're going to see a little bit more toned down messaging from Republicans in the Senate, I think, it, to, to demonstrate that they have some uh, some governing capacity uh, and that they're going to work together and they're going to try and project that promise for voters in Georgia to to appeal to them. What, one of the interesting things for me, not just for me, but for everybody looking at the election results last week is that this was a repudiation of Trump as opposed to the Republican Party because down ballot, the Republican Party kind of did okay. But political calculus and the fact that Trump is still in power until January, you know, give us a sense of how Mitch McConnell and the Republicans in the Senate are going to be playing that. Because this is a big thumbs down for him as opposed to necessarily them. This could actually be a good outcome for them because they are dumping a huge liability uh, in many ways. They want to preserve their tax cuts and they want to preserve uh, the, the deep ju judicial bench that they've installed. Um, and they can stonewall from the, the Senate if they do that. So, you know, looking forward, I think you're going to see a lot of what we've seen from Republicans so far. You're going to see them go back to a lot of the Obama era footing that they were on. Um, there will be uh, a miraculous rediscovery of uh, fiscal probity and then and uh, austerity. You know, we can't be spending money. Um, Gonna, you know, how they work with the administration is, is uh, a lot of people are trying to read the tea leaves between Mitch McConnell and Joe Biden. Joe Biden was in the Senate for decades. He worked with Mitch McConnell for decades. Uh, I'm, I'm a little skeptical that that is going to turn things around for the Biden administration when it comes to what they can accomplish in the Senate. Biden and McConnell may have been friends, but I am not sure that that's sufficient to bring McConnell around on some of the policies that Biden may want to try and push. Through. It's that time of the year. Your vacation is coming up. You can already hear the beach waves, feel the warm breeze, relax, and think about work. 
You really, really want it all to work out while you're away. Monday.com gives you and the team that peace of mind. When all work is on one platform and everyone's in sync, things just flow. Wherever you are, tap the banner to go to Monday.com. Ready to pop the question? The jewelers at BlueNile.com have got sparkle down to a science with beautiful lab-grown diamonds worthy of your most brilliant moments. Their lab-grown diamonds are independently graded and guaranteed identical to natural diamonds, and they're ready to ship to your door. Go to BlueNile.com and use promo code LISTEN to get $50 off your purchase of $500 or more. That's code LISTEN at BlueNile.com for $50 off. BlueNile.com, code LISTEN. Hiring for your small business? If you're not looking for professionals on LinkedIn, you're looking in the wrong place. That's like looking for your car keys in a fish tank. LinkedIn helps you hire professionals you can't find anywhere else, even those who aren't actively searching for a new job but might be open to the perfect role. In a given month, over 70% of LinkedIn users don't even visit other leading job sites. So start looking in the right place. With LinkedIn, you can hire professionals like a professional. Post your free job on linkedin.com slash people today. This morning, Georgia is the battlefield in the fight for control of the U.S. Senate. Both Senate races there headed for January runoffs in a state where the presidential race remains too close to call. Georgia is the heart of the change that's coming to America. Republicans are likely to hold on to 50 seats. After record-breakingly expensive efforts to unseat Senators Susan Collins, Lindsey Graham, and Majority Leader Mitch McConnell, among others, fell far short. We have not yet actually secured the majority that will be determined in Georgia. Democrats need candidates John Ossoff and Reverend Raphael Warnock to win their races against incumbents David Perdue and Kelly Loeffler. Listen, Georgia is changing. It is the battleground state. Two Democratic wins in Georgia would set the Senate at 50-50, with Democrats in control and Kamala Harris casting the tie-breaking vote Across the Capitol, the House remains in Democratic control, but with Republicans picking up at least seven seats, leaving Nancy Pelosi with a smaller majority. What does that tell you about what the American people want from their Congress? We've lost some battles, but we won the war. We have the gavel. Democrats lost some prominent members in districts carried by the president. House Republicans pleased that most of their new members will be women. We'll set a record for the most women ever in the Republican Party. I've always wondered, and then I'm going to ask you the question, I'm going to throw this out to, to Jared and then also to Corey, but it's hard not to look at Republican Party conventions. I remember in 2016 just being utterly shocked as to how white it was, which is, you know, something coming back to what Jane was saying before. You saw the Democratic Party convention, uh, where it was the coronation for Clinton, for Hillary Clinton. And it was, it was the America that I know, but it's America of California, of Northern California. It was, it was white, it was brown, it was yellow, and it was black. After the defeat in 2012, um, Rance Priebus did an internal kind of audit and said that, you know, we need to get on board with uh, the shape of, of America kind of going forward. Demographically, there's, there is a time bomb. Do Republicans on Capitol Hill act, actively talk about their caucus and how the other side looks different from them? As I said, kind of at the start of the show, those late metropolitan areas, the vote that came in, it wasn't just young America. It was black America as well as young America. It was diverse America uh, that tipped things decidedly against Trump. Are 
Senate Republicans aware of the demographic time bomb? They may be aware of it, but uh, I think they're less concerned about how they fix it for themselves as opposed to how they deal to those demographics more broadly. It is a consideration. It, it is part of the calculus. Um, but on the other side of that calculus, you do have some very strong, uh, you know, very entrenched interests in uh, on the Republican side of the base that are around immigration, that are around affirmative action, that are around, you know, things that touch on race in a way that's perhaps not so healthy uh, or inclusive. You know, I'm a little hesitant to describe the entire party as racist. Some people do. Uh, I, I think it's a, a lot more nuanced and a lot more subtle than that. Jared, I kind of asked this question before, and I, as far as I'm concerned, you didn't really give me a, a satisfactory answer. So let me try, oh, wow. try and pose this in a different way. It is January the 20th, or let's say it's January the 21st. So it's the first day mm -hmm. where Biden gets his feet underneath uh, the Resolute desks. What should his, let's put the coronavirus to one side. Right. We've seen moves today that he's got his going to put his task force in place. He's going to take it to one side. And also we're recording on Tuesday and um, at least in the UK, people are jumping up and down and very excited about the fact that uh, Pfizer actually has a, a vaccine. What should be top of his intray in terms of policies to very clearly turn the table on Trumpism? I mean, I think we have seen signals of what that is going to look like already. There's going to be a series of executive orders that were, that essentially say, okay, well, that happened, but now we're going back on a wide variety of things. If the idea is to reverse Trumpism because Trump has tended to rule by executive order, that's pretty easy, right? If the question is, does the reversal of Trumpism require extra effort beyond simply just saying, well, that was bad, let's do something that's good, that in some way honors what you've pointed out to be a really diverse coalition, which was pushed over the, the top by Black people the entire way. Some kind of police reform would probably fucking help. That would be an enormous step forward, not just for Biden, the candidate, but the country. Four months ago, we had one of our periodic flare-ups around the issue of African-Americans and the police. This has been a complaint that has gone back decades, and there will be moments in which it erupts into some kind of social unrest or actual serious violence and there is always this gesture towards well this is the time that we're going to get it right let me jump yeah. in let me jump in because this is one of the great kind of structural differences between uh, the united kingdom and, and the united states sure. as i understand it and then i'm going to come on to you corey there's only so much that the president can do that the federal right. government can do because you have 50 states who all have their own laws around policing. Whereas in the United Kingdom, Boris Johnson can say, we're going to do this, get it voted in in Parliament, and it's national law in terms of police governance. How much from on top can a President Biden do to address 
police reform. And then, Corey, uh, you, you know, you know all about the law. Maybe you can uh, weigh in as well afterwards. I think, sadly, given the tight margins in the, in the Congress, he's pretty limited. There can be a presidential commission on police reform, et cetera, et cetera. Getting that stuff through Congress is tricky, you know? Is symbolically more important than actually what the app... Oh, God. No, 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 absolutely not. I I find political gestures almost completely meaningless. Corey, what scope does the President of the United States have in terms of, let's say, setting police policy from, let's say, January the 21st? Let's just deal with that conceptually before we go on to any kind of detail. I mean, one thing to say is you're right that there is a definite difference between our two systems. We have a system of federalism and a 10th Amendment that reserves some powers to the states. And although for basically between FDR and what's sometimes called the Federalist Revolution or the Rehnquist Revolution, the federal government could basically do what it wanted. But there are cases kind of reviving the 10th Amendment that limit the president's power vis-a-vis the state. So if the president wanted to just try to take over a local police force, that's almost certainly unconstitutional. And even progressives like me have tried to use some of those 10th Amendment protections against Trump, for instance, when he's tried to defund sanctuary cities. There's a lot that can be done. And the most immediate thing, which is already getting attention, which I'm focused on, is the question of what's called qualified immunity. In the 19th century, there was really a new idea of how to structure the country. The Congress passed what's broadly known as the the Enforcement Act, one of several Enforcement Acts or the Ku Klux Klan Act, that gave citizens the ability to sue state officials. So a citizen who's beaten up by a cop can sue that cop. Now, what happened to that? And that seems like it would be a pretty powerful technique to use against abusive police officers. The Supreme Court, Ironically, the Warren Court started to basically limit the power to use that legislation. What they did is they created a doctrine, and now this is going to sound familiar, I think, to a lot of you, which basically says it's only when it's really clear that your rights have been abused that you can do this lawsuit. The first thing that has to be done is this is a terrible doctrine created by the Supreme Court, I think, without realizing that it was really doing was limiting the rights of citizens to curb police power. And there's already legislation that I believe has passed the House and, you know, Biden administration could really make this a priority, uh, certainly to pass through a Democratic Senate. That would be a big deal. It would empower citizens to really have more power in doing what this 19th century law was supposed to allow, which is the ability to sue police officers. So that's one huge thing is to start to use the civil rights amendments and the, the statutes, the congressional power that comes with it. I think also, you know, the federal government has something to say about unions and the power of police unions is something that we might want to start to think about curbing uh, either through executive action or through the NLRB or through legislation. Uh, well, well said, uh, brother, and, and extremely clear. Uh, traditionally on the show, I do takeaways of the week when I have a panel. And it's a, it's a moment for everybody to come together and be all very kumbayarish to embrace the the inner warmth of our of our fellow man. 
it'd be unfair of me just to say to to you for let's have your takeaways of of the week um, because I haven't set this show up uh, in that way. What I'm going to do is pose a question, which is America is polarized. And I think if America's going to get through, let's say, I'm going to say the next two years successfully, it doesn't just need a president who's going to say that I'm president of all of you, something which Trump never did in his four years. He was always a Republican. So the question I'm going to ask you one by one is how can and what should Joe Biden do in the next two years to address America's polarization and to try and heal it. The, the only way that I've ever understood American, the structure of American politics is that it's consensus. You know, I come from a, a, a country which has a parliamentary uh, tradition which is adversarial. And in effect, you have a governing autocracy, or so to speak, where the governing party fundamentally kind of does whatever it wants and parliament kind of rubber stamps that. You can only have three branches of government which can formulate legislation if fundamentally there is consensus. And that consensus has broken down. And to be fair to Trump, it it was breaking down before Trump. So there is um, the system of government whereby consensus can can actually reign and things can actually get done. And then there is this deep issue of the polarisation of of, of American society where people are self-shifting. The the demographics are that liberals live with liberals and conservatives live with conservatives. But I'm deeply and utterly optimistic by nature and I spend half my year in your country. So first off, Jane, to you, and we need a positive statement from you. You are Joseph Biden. It's any time between 2021 and 2023. Tell us one thing you'd do to help heal America's political divide. I would continue to talk the way that he does, but I would at the same time recognize that polarization has always been a part of the American experience. And in Joe Biden's lifetime, in many ways, this is the exception to that. So if I were him, I would keep saying what he's saying, but I would recognize that this election was not a repudiation of Trump or Trumpism. Trump didn't exist before this, but what he stands for and what he activated, what he continued to tickle and pull out, which came out as 71 million voters supporting, affirmatively supporting this viewpoint has always been there. I would attempt to bring the olive branch, as Clinton was mentioning, with respect to whether it's Lindsey Graham or Mitch McConnell, but I would never turn my back. I think Jane has it really right. Leadership matters so much. We've seen a huge breakdown in that over the past four years with Trump. Uh, We've really been dragged down in so many ways. So I I think just kind of restoring the normal functioning of government, the expectation that citizens can have in elected officials and government officials that things are going to be run on the up and up, that uh, he's leading in that way. Uh, Here's a question. I'm going to throw it at you, uh, Clint. I'm breaking my rules now here because it's supposed to be just like everyone's just going to say something lovely and it was going to be kumbaya in America in the, in the next two, two years or so. Gerrymandering, which I know is not necessarily a Senate issue. It's, it's a congressional kind of, kind of issue, but it's been one of the ways of which the Republican Party have been able to entrench their kind of minority rule throughout bit, bits of America. But also what it's done is to 
lump areas with uh, Republican voters or Democratic voters. And it has to be said that the, the Republican Party have been um, tremendous in kind of um, doing that on a, on a state level. Would you see that a compact around gerrymandering would be one way of actually help to heal some of the partisan polarization of American politics, whereby the more congressional districts are going to be in play. So a congressman or congresswoman has to um, go out and maybe canvass in other areas of their districts, which they never did before because they didn't need those votes. Yeah, I do think that that could be a good way to to build a little bit more centrist, not necessarily centrist, but but a broadly acceptable political environment. So many districts are one party or the other, and you you hardly have to to wonder who's going to win in the general election because it's been determined in the primary for whichever is the dominant party there. You, you put the Senate aside a little bit, but the, the Senate is the is the same districts as the Electoral College. And, you know, we're looking at the Electoral College map and it, it's very stark. It's red and blue. Um, and the fact of the matter is that none of those states are 100 percent red or 100 percent blue. Uh, there, there are a lot of voters on both sides. And, and in some cases, those states were pretty close. Fixing the gerrymandering problem and perhaps, uh, you know, fixing some of the primary the incentives in the primary elections to get a little bit more consensus, to get a little bit more uh, moderate policy making going on. Jared, um, we're back on the Kumbaya. And I know you're one of the sunniest people that I know, right? You're all, you exude sunshine all the time. So uh, it's, it's rainbows, it's unicorns. Um, how are we going to achieve that in the next two years? You are president of the United States. I would actually do the opposite of what I said to the previous question. I would just focus on economic issues. People can disagree with me. My fundamental sense of why Trumpism has been, was successful the first time, is that the distribution of wealth in the country has not recovered since the banking crisis, particularly for people who are living in marginal flyover territory. The way I knew Trump was gonna win in 2016 was that I had to, I was doing a book tour and I just kept going to all of the states uh, or he ended up winning in. And I hadn't been in a lot of those states for about 10 years. And the difference between what they looked like in that decade interval was shocking. If you want to satiate the populace, just give them enough money to figure out a way for them to get enough money to satiate themselves. But I think there's a direct relationship between their expression and the perception or the actuality of scarcity of resources. I, in large part, actually agree. Amazing. <laughs> it's not by accident that countries where there is more societal and political rancor is when the economy is going down the tubes, or at least where people feel there's an unfair distribution of wealth. Mm. It's not by accident. But surely America has this historic stain of inequality uh, to do with judicial outcomes, criminal outcomes, financial outcomes, every kind of outcome you're going, which is actually to do with, to do with race. And potentially we're at a pivot point where because of um, the death of George Floyd, because 
we do have um, a vice president who's going to look very different from every other vice president that has ever been before. And because of the diverse coalition of the Democratic Party, doesn't America have an opportunity to at least also talk about that as well? Yeah, I mean, it definitely does. I would hope that happened. Yeah. yeah. All right. Just checking. I was just checking. Yeah. Yeah. No, I mean, if that, if that happens, you can come back to me in a year and I will tell you that Biden is one of the best presidents we've ever had. But for the time being, let's see. Dependent on the 40 year cycle, Biden is setting himself up to be that transformational president. Corey Brett Schneider. Wait, 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 let me, sorry, let me just ask you, do you really, because you talked about this 40-year cycle, and I was thinking about it the other day, mm. and do you believe, you personally, that Biden has it in him to be the transformational figure, to fall in line with this schemata that you've uh, subscribed to? It's a very powerful theory. And there's no two ways about it. Every 40 years, approximately 40 years in American politics, and arguably in all mature democracies, there's some kind of seismic change. And it's less whether that politician um, actually is um, a revolutionary within himself. It's he's a product of the time. There are prevailing societal winds, shifts, tectonic plates, whatever the metaphor you want to use, which they go along with. And they happen to be in the right place at the right time. And there is something truly um, seismic in terms of what is happening in, in American demography, politics, society. And it could well be that this politician that's been around forever, who is somebody of the centre, gets buffeted by, by those winds, by a Congress that feels emboldened, and maybe by a Senate, of which there is this historically be a freak result where there are two Democrats get in. But it's it's less him and more the time of which he would be serving is the way. Okay, that, that's fair, because I was thinking about you and this two days ago or a day ago, and I was wondering. Uh, here's the point that I would make. Ronald Reagan... His politics changes at the end of the 1950s and he gets radicalised almost in, in opposite to the 1960s throughout the 1960s and he's a Goldwater person. Let's say that Carter squeaks that election in 1980. I would contend that the, in 1984 you get somebody else who's like Reagan. It's just not called Ronald Reagan because okay. you've already got Thatcher in the UK. You've got this whole bank of neoliberal economic theory. The Republican right. Party would have come in with somebody that would not be called Ronald Reagan, but it would have been a Reagan-esque politician. Fair enough. Corey Brett Schneider, I'm leaving, I'm not going to say it's the best till last. I'm leaving <laughs> you till last, sir. Um, give us your um, America's going to be all right. And this is how me as being Joe Biden, how I'm going to help fix political polarization. Uh, I mean, I'm going to echo some of the other comments. I do think it's the rhetoric matters. We're recovering from a white supremacist president who used rhetoric from the travel ban, from what he said about um, Mexican people coming to the United States. That was sort of what defined, I think, his presidency. So what's necessary is to talk like a president again. Jefferson said, you know, we're all federalists, we're all Republicans. That kind of rhetoric is a big deal. 
But at the same time, I think we have to recognize that there is a significant portion of this country that supported him for white supremacist reasons, whatever that percentage is, it's sizable. And uh, that means that if you're going to do something about police brutality and police killing and uh, voting rights and to basically restore those amendments that I talked about, restore the idea of equal protection under law, you're not going to heal everybody. Some people are going to be mad. The language that of conciliation has to come with racial justice and with an ideal of equality. And if there are some people who reject that, they're rejecting democracy. They're rejecting the idea of equality under law. And that is the sad truth of where we are in American politics, that you won't satisfy everyone. And even conciliatory rhetoric of the kind that you're talking about is going to offend some people if it comes with real action to undergird it with the protection of civil rights. Uh, so yes, yeah, say the right things, do the right things, and, and uh, that's going to make a lot of people in this country angry, and uh, so be it. But hopefully it's going to make more people happy than angry. Majority, I believe. <laughs> I don't know how, how, once we get over that 50%, I'm not sure. No, yeah, I want to add one more thing, and it's a little, I don't know if it's a crazy thought, but on Tuesday, it wasn't Tuesday, I'm sorry, it was on Saturday morning. It was like 8.30 in the morning in California was still in the morning in the East Coast. And when I watched on television people celebrating the call of the election to Biden in the last state, Pennsylvania, that put him over, what did you see out there? It was all kinds of people. I saw a ton of flags, American flags. I saw saw the Statue of Liberty, a big old eagle in Philadelphia. That could have been for their football team. But there was a lot of patriotic stuff. And I thought to myself, this isn't something staged. This was just ordinary people celebrating. What were they celebrating? They were celebrating what many people think was saving democracy. This is how it's been spun to us. Why doesn't Joe Biden be a patriot? Why doesn't he enact that? Why doesn't he hold similar rallies? Not just about where you're trashing one party or a person, but instead, why not make these patriotic rallies around beating coronavirus, around welcoming new Americans. Since when has the American flag been only something the Republican Party can use? I think that liberals don't like to lie one or be all patriotic, but I think what I saw in the streets all over the country was people actually celebrating the United States, not in an ugly way, but in a happy way, In many ways, I think that when you see these Trump rallies, whether they're in the freezing cold in South Dakota, North Dakota, people want to be a part of something. And many of these people aren't a part of anything. It's just as Jared said, the difference between these communities 10 or 15 years ago and now, there are no more unions. Churches, there are, but it's not the same. Families have disintegrated. So many people aren't a part of things like they used to be. But if there's something we're going to defeat, maybe it's the coronavirus. Let's have a party anti-microbe parties, you know? Why not? Actually, it's not a microbe, it's a virus. I think there's a difference, but why can't progressives be patriotic? We are. It came out. You, you didn't even have to try. It just happened. It was spontaneous. And I think it was pretty beautiful on Saturday. Extremely relieved. Found it really hard to focus until, really, until today. It's like a major, just 
like letting go, and that's what everyone's out here doing today, it seems. I believe in what America, what I thought we meant, and, and what I thought we stood for, and that's character over materialism, and over lies, and over hatred. So I hope that we can find a way forward through all of that barrage that's been voiced upon a good chunk of our country that they that they believe. Hope we can find our way to them and they to us. Thank you everybody for your time. We've gone significantly over, but um, I think it's been um, um, a very uh, chat, a very powerful one. Um, Matt's been me, um, an Englishman abroad, an Englishman in this weird and wonderful and beautiful country, a country called America, which has uh, gone through at least it says it's going through some some level of a rebirth. It's putting beside it, behind it, the last the last four years. What the next four years uh, holds, um, heaven only knows. But I wish America the best because it's a wonderful country. It's, it is a country of dreams and aspirations, but it's also a country of reinvention. And let's hope that we can welcome America back into the brotherhood of countries um, because we have missed her the last four years. It's been me, Royfield Brown, with my new best friends, Jane, John, Clint, Gerard, and uh, Corey, um, my friends from all over the America, telling me that things have been a little bit hairy, but things will be better. Take care. See you all again soon for another rip-roaring, barnstorming episode of Mid-Atlantic, where we look at politics from either side of the Atlantic. And I think we've done enough of America now. So let's go back home. Let's go back to Blighty next week. And let's look at Corona politics. Bye-bye. Take care. Um, we have worked so hard for so many years and we have flipped this, we've flipped the presidency. We know that we can flip the Senate and we have so much work to do. So we're excited, but we're energized for the next eight weeks because we know it's going to be crazy and we're here for it. I can tell you in Georgia, we feel responsible for this. We feel like we made the difference because Joe Biden won in Georgia. We flipped the state blue, we changed history, and now we're going to change the history, the history of the country. Hi, I'm Daniel, founder of Pretty Litter. Did you know cats tend to hide symptoms of sickness and pain? I learned this the hard way after losing my cat, Gingy. So I created Pretty Litter, a health monitoring litter that helps detect early signs of illness by changing colors, saving you money and potentially your cat's life. Pretty Litter is veterinary and developed, and it's the easiest way to keep tabs on your fur baby's health right at home. Go to prettylitter.com and use code ACAST for 20% off your first order and a free cat toy. Terms and conditions apply. See site for details. When you make decisions for your company, you look for the no-brainers. If you have a lot of mailing to do, Stamps.com is the ultimate no-brainer. Use the Stamps.com mobile app to mail everything you need to keep your business running with up to 89% off USPS and UPS. Make the same no-brainer decision as over 1 million other businesses with Stamps.com. Use code PROGRAM for a special offer. That's Stamps.com, code PROGRAM.